Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast with Jamie Fujikawa and Lorinda Andrist. You may be familiar with today's guest through his role as an author of various obstetrical sonography textbooks and articles. In addition, many of us may know that he is a professor and program director, most recently at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. The scope of his involvement in the arena of medical sonography is expansive, including original research, technical development of ultrasound equipment, and service on various societal boards and committees. For reasons that will become more evident in our conversations with him today, I'm going to refer to him as a master of linguistics as well. We want to welcome to the podcast Mr. Terry DeBose. Terry, thank you for joining us today. Terry, I, of course, know you as a author of sonography textbooks, um, mainly around obstetrics and some articles that you've been a part of. I'd like to start out by asking you a little bit about your background, where you were from and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in far west Texas, uh, in Brownfield, southeast of Lubbock a little bit, on the high plains, cotton country. I was very interested in science. I was born in the middle of World War II, and so I was getting to be eight or nine or ten, just as the war industry was retooling to produce all the stuff people wanted. And chemistry sets were cheap, and they were excellent. Gilbert chemistry sets. I had two or three. I had microscopes. We had a basement that I was able to set all this stuff up, and uh, I essentially learned to read, uh, reading Gilbert chemistry set uh, manual, and uh, pretty much was my interest was uh, science and uh, that sort of thing. I was a little bit dyslexic. It took me a while to learn to read, and I never did learn to spell. I still can't spell, but fortunately, spell checkers came along right as I published my first article uh, for medicine, and uh, it it saved my life. I probably never would have published another article. I I can understand that. I feel you on the spelling side. (laughs) I'll join in that club, too. What was your first article that you published? It was for, um, it was back in the days of medical ultrasound, the predecessor to the JDMS. And uh, it was back in the days of articulated arm single crystal transducers. And I had been, I had the first instrument in Austin, or one of the first two instruments. There was always a debate whether Brackenridge Hospital or Seton Hospital got it. And I was at Seton, and I still think I got it because. The truck, they, they were the same model. They came from California, from Rowie, and uh, we were west of uh, Brackenridge, so I think they stopped at Seton on the way into town before they got there, and I think I got my hands on it first. <laughs> and uh, I never looked back. I was in x-ray school at the time it showed up, and I was asking questions about it, but nobody knew anything about it. Another radiologist had studied it. One radiologist Dr. Buell had been at San Francisco with Philly, and he says, oh, yeah, it's coming. He said they had it in the back room, but just the big boys got to play with it. He never did get get it. It wasn't in the curriculum yet for physicians. And so um, I, I don't know. It just I fell in love with it. So you said you were interested in sciences. So how, where in high school um, did you, or in your kind of end of high school years, did you decide to go after high school? 
Well, I did well in physics and chemistry in high school. I did lousy in English and grammar. And uh, when I went to Hardin-Simmons, I went there, which is Baptist University in Abilene, Texas. And the minister at the church I went to had played football there and had huge influence on me. So I rather naively went to a Baptist University in uh, West Texas, in Abilene, Texas. Got a bachelor's degree in business administration just because I didn't know what else to get. They, they weren't really a science. I, it, it, it was uh, kind of wish I'd have gone to the University of Texas, but I didn't. I went to Abilene instead. So we were going to ask what originally motivated that uh, decision to study business and economics, because that's what you studied at uh, Hardin-Simmons, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I got a degree uh, in uh, business administration, bachelor of business administration, with a minor in economics, which did help me later. But little did I know that uh, once I got into medicine and worked in the trenches for a few years, then having a degree where I could interpret a spreadsheet or a profit and loss statement uh, helped me advance. Absolutely. Yeah, I could see the use for that later on. So everything's meant to be, maybe. Yeah, I guess. Did you play football? Uh, no, I, I did in junior high, and I got a uh, hyperextension of my knee, my left knee, and it ended my football day. Football days. Well, where did your path lead after graduating from Hardin-Simmons? Well, every summer during college, I measured land for the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, cotton allotments, They you have to measure the cotton allotments so that they know how much cotton, and because the farmers were being paid on a uh, prorated basis of how much cotton they were growing or not growing and mm-hmm. depends on the year. And uh, so after I graduated in May of 66, um, I had interviewed in 66, LBJ was cranking up Vietnam big time. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed with all, you know, the recruiters send, uh, or the corporations send recruiters to campus your senior year. And I had pretty good credentials. I was student body president and had been active in the student body uh, government uh, all four years. And my grades were decent. They weren't excellent. I was uh, more interested in campus politics than academics at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed with every corporation, and they essentially had a script. They would say, uh, can you get in a National Guard unit? Well, there was a three- and four-year waiting list for National Guard in 1966. I know Danny Quayle and George Bush Jr. got in, but I don't I, My dad was an auto mechanic in West Texas. I had no way. <laughs> and uh, so I went back that summer and measured land for the Department of Agriculture one more summer. But by August, you have to you have to finish measuring the cotton or they can't harvest. <laughs> and so I got real depressed and uh, I enlisted in the Army and volunteered for Vietnam, which I still consider the worst mistake I ever made. Well, that leads us right into our next question is, can you tell us about your time spent in Vietnam and how that led into the career in medical ultrasound? Well, it didn't lead into it directly. Um, When I volunteered, I had orders when I went to Vietnam for 5th Special Forces uh, 
Green Berets. And uh, I don't know what happened between the time I left the United States and I got to Vietnam, but my orders were changed. And I was sent into the Mekong Delta with 53rd General Support Group. And I was the executive officer and property book officer for headquarters and headquarters company. And we supplied all of the Mekong Delta. I had nine property books, which is how the Army accounts for property. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything from the APO uh, postal units property, their Jeep, they had a couple of Jeeps, they had uh, mess tents, uh, uh, a uh, motor pool, a couple of motor pools, uh, a lot of equipment. And uh, it was very, very haphazard. It, it felt like I got there and the poor guy that I was replacing was a month late leaving country because I wouldn't sign for the books because they were a mess. Mm. There was a lost helicopter. There was a lost airfield fire truck. There was uh, all kinds of lost material. Wow. And finally, um, a really good Major Leatherman who came to me and he says, we got we to gotta let this guy go home if he gets injured. Uh, the clock. A month after he... Uh, was supposed to go home, we're all going to be in big trouble. Yeah. And he says, if you'll sign for the property books, I'll help you find the stuff and we will stand behind you on it that you didn't, you didn't lose it. So I signed for property books. He went home and I spent the rest of my year doing inventories and trying to straighten out property books, trying to find lost equipment and basically writing off um, statements of loss saying, uh, no, it's lost. Who knows where it is? Mm. And, uh, of course, every time one of our detachments in the Mekong Delta got hit by a rocket or an attack, uh, we would very quickly look at all their equipment that we uh, had, that they had some of. Uh, anyway, we, we just started writing stuff off. It got blown up. and There wasn't anything else we could do. Mm-hmm. And you, you spent how long over there? One year, okay. uh, 67 to 68. Tet Offensive was right in the middle of my tour. Okay. So how did you end up with just one year and not staying longer? That's all the Army stayed. The only ones that stayed longer than that were Marines, and they stayed 13 months just because they stayed longer than anybody else. Anybody who stayed longer than that, had to sign up to go back or stay. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't about to stay after. <laughs> so did you do any medical training in while you were over there in Vietnam? Did you have? No. no. Well, I got out and I was pretty crazy. I spent three, three years full-time protesting the war. I helped organize the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, the VBAW. I was on the National Steering Committee with John Kerry and I was the state, uh, coordinator for Texas for VVAW. And I protested uh, all over the country, Washington, D.C., of course, all over Texas, Houston. I was a silk screener. uh, So I was silk screening T-shirts and anti-war posters and all kinds of things. And uh, 
after the war started winding down, there was a fine line between being a full-time war protester and being a street person. And I was uh, getting married and decided I needed a real job. I had been a, the first year I was back and I was a tax examiner for the state of Texas motor fuels until Kent State happened. And after Kent State massacre, I got up from my desk and walked out, hitchhiked to California and did a lot of stuff. Finally, after three years, they started winding, 75, 74, well, really 72 is when I decided the Army was out of the war and it was turning into an air war. I was trying to figure out a job, and I decided uh, in order to try to recoup my karma from Vietnam that I would go into health care. And I tried volunteering in two or three hospitals, uh, but they, they, and, and I tried for jobs, but they said, well, you're mistrained. We don't need business administrators. We need hospital administrators. I didn't have a bachelor hospital administration. So I went to a career counselor uh, at the Texas Hospital Association, and he said, well, you've done a lot of photography. I had had a dark room in my basement when I was playing with chemistry and stuff. And I'd uh, silkscreened anti-war posters all over the country and all over Texas. He says, you've done a lot of imaging, and I'd done a lot of video, too. I had video cameras, and he says, you've done a, a lot of imaging and video. He says, why don't you try x-ray? He says, just like photography, you're just not using visible light. So I said, okie doke. And uh, I got a call on Saturday morning, the week after that, from Dr. Arian Snyder, who was president of the Austin Radiological Association and was running a small hospital school in Seton Hospital. And he says, can you come in and see me Monday morning? And so I said, sure, I'll be there. So I was there and because I already had a bachelor's degree, no one else in the program had a bachelor's degree. So they let me into a program that had already commenced, that already started. So I went through with those people, and when I finished, they immediately put me to teaching physics and, and algebra uh, at the junior college that took it over when Seton gave it up at uh, Concordia Lutheran. And so I taught uh, physics, x-ray physics uh, there and at the state hospital and a few places. And I was doing a paper, uh, diffraction of x-rays, to do the double helix that we were reading about the double helix. and. I kept asking radiologists, I said, well, if we can't focus x-rays, how do they do the double helix? How, do, how does that work? And I couldn't get a straight answer, so I read all I could, and I figured it out, and we actually did a diffraction uh, x-rays through a uh, quartz crystal, and we got a pattern. And uh, but it wasn't focusing, of course. It was scattered, you know, Compton scatter and, and reinforcement. Anyway, in reading about that wave motion nature of X-rays or gamma rays, I kept running across this thing, ultrasound. And I went to the one of the younger, like the, the radiologist I said who had been at, at uh, University of California with Philly. And he says, yeah, it's coming, but uh, it's not here. So I started asking the hospital to get it. And, of course, it's Catholic hospital, and anything, I think, over $10,000 has to have the Pope's approval or something. <laughs> it, uh, it took about uh, 18 months, and when that 
the machine showed up. I was on the loading dock, and they stuck it, stuck me in a uh, cubicle down in intensive care that wasn't being used, pulled curtains around it, and I had a textbook of sample and sardi that uh, Dr. Snyder gave me. And so I was scanning myself, scanning my liver and all over, and gallbladder and looking at the pictures they had. And I said, oh, I, I can do that. And finally, one day after I'd had the machine three days, this surgeon came and stuck his head through the window, uh, not through the window, through the curtain, yeah. and said, they tell me you can see gallstones with that thing. And I said, well, I can see my gallbladder, but I've never seen a gallstone. He said, well, we've got a patient down in x-ray that they can't get any, any x-rays off. We can't see his gallbladder. The, the uptake of the iodine's not working or something. He says, I would like you to take a look. And so they brought the guy down, and I got pictures, really good pictures, of three gallstones about the size of a half a centimeter. And I said, well, here's what they look like in the textbook, and here's what we got on the screen. And I said, I think we got gallstones. He says, well, we're going to surgery on that. Wow. They went out and they found three gallstones, just the size I said they were, and it was I was like gold after that. It was everybody wanted to see what was going on, especially the LB guys, and it uh, it really opened up, and there was so much attention. I, I I was in a catbird seat. It was it was rare to be in a position like that, and have have so many people interested in what you're doing. And nobody there who knew enough to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's easy when you're the leader of the pack to have nobody question you at that point. Yeah, so yeah. What type of machine was that? A rowing, articulated arm with a single crystal. And that was where my first picture. By that time, uh, first article, uh, they had ordered similar equipment at at uh, Bailey Square and at Seton and uh, – I had it at Seton and then at uh, Medical Arts. There were three offices that had the same machine. And so I noticed a difference in some. I'd, I'd go look at their machines when they got new ones. Yeah, I wanted to see them. And I noticed that there was a difference in the near field in, in what we were seeing. And so I borrowed their three, those, you know, transducers. And I just said, I want to take these and test them. And so I, uh, I think I had three. I may have had four. They were all identical. Supposed to be identical. Mm-hmm. And I screwed them in, and they, they all gave different noise patterns in the air. And uh, I figured out that I could take a cloth towel, a terry cloth towel, and press against the front of it real hard. And either the noise, if, if it only had a little bit of noise, it didn't affect it. But if it had a lot of noise, it would compress it. And that told me that there was something wrong. Either the the crystal was not well glued to the back damping material that were in those transducers, or there was a crack, or there was something wrong with those transducers. And so I did images of my liver with all of them, plus the uh, what, what we call front damping, because they already had back damping with that material that they glued the back of it to okay. stop it from ringing. And... Uh, I wrote the first article, uh, which was painful for the medical ultrasound. Mimi Berman was the editor. 
And I, I had to do it with uh, two, two dictionaries, an English dictionary and a medical dictionary. And we were doing it with carbon paper. So it was a nightmare writing a paper. I never would have written another one. But between the time that one was published, I got a my first uh, computer with spell checker. And from then on, we there was a time at ARA about four or five years that we never went a month without having a new article either in review or in press or being published. It it just uh, we we were just churning them out. Wow, that's impressive. Anything you could see, you could write about. We published the first sonogram of a uh, female's urethral uh, valve, published in radiology, and, and it went on from there. That was the next one we, we did. It was really exciting and, and interesting times. So that you were you were currently teaching a couple of those classes still too, and did you did you integrate that ultrasound education that you were actually forming and learning into the into the Education for the radiology students? Uh, no, not for radiology students. Uh, I always taught sonography, and they uh, they came to me. And we, we tried for, um, oh, a couple of years to hire a sonographer. And we finally hired uh, Linda Porter from uh, Denver. She had been working with the UNRAD people up there. And she was from Austin, and so she wanted to come back home. And so we hired her, but we couldn't get anybody else. And she and I, it got to the point we were doing 20 and 25 cases a day and each. Wow. And um, we, we, we tried to hire someone, and there just wasn't anybody. Mm-hmm. So we talked to Austin Community College about starting a program there. And, of course, Austin Community College said, well, we don't know if there's enough demand for us to have a full-time faculty in the whole program. And so Austin Radiological and Dr. Hill, who was president of the group by then, Snyder was retiring, gave me a fourth of my time to do clinical rounds to check on the students during the day. And I taught classes at night out at the campus and supervised four outpatient sonographic labs uh, in Austin in between. And of course, my students were in my labs. Mm-hmm. I was able to check on them and keep up with them. And I did that for four years. We started the program at ACC in 89, and I taught uh, for almost five years. Then we uh, got a job offer in Arkansas. So there was not a formal program for sonography anywhere in the state. There were a few hospitals who were trying to OJT people, but it was the blind leading the blind, as near as I could tell. Yeah. And so, and my grandparents had had a farm in western Arkansas in the Washita Mountains, so I wasn't afraid of it. I remember going to SDMS meeting in Chicago, and I think it was in 94 we were in Chicago, and I, and I, this was just before I had accepted the job, and I says, anybody know anything about sonography in Arkansas? Beth Anderhub says, well, it's not much of a pay scale. <laughs> that was all I knew because I knew the state, and it was a beautiful state. We loved the state. It, wow. it's, it's got trees and everything we don't have in West Texas, trees and water and lakes and, you know, fishing and skiing and all that stuff. And so, uh, and Lucy went with me, and we went to uh, Little Rock and started that first program, and I was program director there 15 years. 
So your so your first practicing clinical really was with that with that articulated arm machine in your cubicle. That was the first time that you had practiced yeah. as a sonographer. Right. Right. Great to being a, a program director. Yeah, and well, we got a Rowie pretty quick, and we got those uh, uh, real time, which was amazing. And being able to watch the fetal heart and and doing all that, it was just, it was really exciting times. I I, I feel very fortunate to have been where I was when I was, because uh, ARA, the Austin Radiological Association, they purchased good equipment. We had top of the line. We had the first color machine in town. We had the first transrectal, uh, first endovaginal. Uh, we, we were just, they, they were interested in it, and they encouraged us to publish. They, they felt like the more we played with it and the more we experimented with it, the better we were. Once you were away from the, the uh, finances of the ARA and moved to Arkansas, then uh, how was it being the program director there? They were very, very good to me. Okay. And the, the only downside, I thought, once I leave, because at Austin, it was just an a associate's degree at ACC, and I had a bachelor's degree in business administration. And it, it just didn't seem to be, um, you know, I was able to publish more there because the radiologist encouraged it. They believed that the more we published, the more we experimented, the more we learned, the better we would be. But when I got to Arkansas, I thought, oh, well, getting to a real university, I'm going to be able to publish even more. But unfortunately, at a university like that, if you don't have a Ph.D. or an M.D., uh, you're not much. And it was so busy starting a new program and having everything. I, I really didn't publish much after that. A few articles mainly on educational topics, only one in medicine. And that was because I had published the article on the first month of the embryonic heart rate, the acceleration. And I had that data from 10,000 cases. And uh, when I got to know the people doing the art, the assisted reproductive technologies, and they had a bunch of cases and they had heart rates. And so I got them to collaborate with me on writing a paper and we compared standard traditional uh, diagnostic images from Austin to their high-risk art or their assisted reproductive, the tested babies and stuff. And we found that that first month, there was no significant difference in the heart rates. Mm. So it, 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 it proved a little bit, but it, that was about it. So in being program director, um, when did you have your first class of graduating students? First class started in 96. They graduated in 97 because the program had been designed by radiology. They had no sonographers. And as soon as I got there, of course, there was a movement, at the, especially the SDMS, to try to improve the educational level. And as, after I'd been there about three years, our... our um, enrollment or applications just went up exponentially and then after about three years it suddenly flattened and started declining and the dean was afraid that the program would have to close and i said the problem is we're offering an associates or certificate wasn't even associates a certificate in sonography to radiologic technologists who already have a degree and they don't want to go backwards and study a year for a certificate 
Sure. If we can make this a bachelor's degree, I think it'll 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 fly. And so uh, we went to the Department of Higher Ed in Arkansas, and uh, we were going to put in for a bachelor's degree uh, for, for, of course, physics, abdomen, and OBGYN. Mm-hmm. We were going to add vascular, uh, so we'd have enough hours for a bachelor's degree. And uh, when we went before the Department of Higher Ed, and I presented our case for it all. There was a cardiologist that was on the board of directors for the Department of Higher Ed in Arkansas that went over all the high universities. And he says, well, what about cardiac? We need cardiac sonographers too. And I said, I kind of stammered and said, well, we thought we would start here and we would add that next. And they seemed to accept that. And they said, uh, okay, we prove it. And then after we were leaving the meeting, the dean elbowed me. He says, we're going to add cardiac, too. <laughs> so uh, we went through that whole process, got the bachelor's degree. Uh, and in the senior year, we, they said if we added both vascular and cardiac for everybody, we would have the number of hours it would take would be closer to a master's degree than a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that the senior year would be split between that everybody got abdomen, OBGYN, and physics the first year. Their second year, and, and they came to us with two years of okay. gen ed, English, history, social studies, all that stuff. Sure. So they had to, they, they were tra- all of our students were transfers from universities and, and junior colleges. Okay. And we gave them two years of sonography and they get, they ended up with a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Senior year, we had to split them, and half the class would go vascular and half would go cardiac because it would have been too many hours for everybody to do both. Sure. And uh, we were able to work it out, and it worked, and uh, it's still going. That is a fabulous uh, story and details. Well, it particularly was a learning experience um, because the program had, they, they couldn't hire a program director until they had a, curriculum in place. The curriculum that was put in place was the director of the radiologic technology program. And he didn't know squat sonography. And it was just a mess. Yeah. And it it got us through the first couple of classes and we adapted and worked it. But finally when the enrollment started dropping, then the dean was worried. Then we got their attention and we were able to move on to a bachelor's degree. He, he was a great supporter. We even for a while discussed starting a master's degree. It was going to be a combined. This was toward the end of my career there. I, I still teach there part-time online. In fact, this is my office. You see my textbooks behind me. Yes. Yeah. I actually get better answers now than they did when I was sitting out in front of them because my memory is not what it used to be. Yeah. And um, we talked to genetics counseling because I thought a combined sonographic genetics counselor would be, it would be like gold. I mean, and, but the problem was we could not get the JRC, DMS, and uh, KHEP to agree with the genetics counseling people about the clinical time. Hmm. Even though our students were at the high-risk OB clinic, and the genetics counselors were at the high-risk OB clinic, and we were working together. They would not let us combine that time into a single program. And it would have 
it would have had it would have been much to nobody it would have been a phd by the time we'd added all those hours yeah absolutely and so i gave up that was one of my failures i never was able that wasn't the right fit yeah i mean do you see now beyond that a better fit for a master's program for sonography no i think it would be a great one for OBGYN. Yeah, I'm sure there's others, cardiac and others, uh, oncology, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I still recommend to the seniors who I teach that if you want to get a master's, the one I'd go for would be after you finish this, get your bachelor's in sonography, is get the master's of genetics counseling. Hmm. Because that can go anywhere, literally anywhere, with a master's in genetics counseling and sonography. Uh, It's wide open, I think. Terry, can you remind me when you joined the SDMS and also when were you elected to the board? I actually joined the AIUM, so I could get the JUM before I did the SDMS. I didn't know much about the SDMS until I published that first article about front damping transducers in the medical ultrasound journal, which was the predecessor to JDMS when Mimi Berman was editor. And so I joined the SDMS so I could get that copy <laughs> of the journal when my patent, when my article was published. And I was a member ever since. And uh, I guess I joined the board when I went to Arkansas because they made, that was back when we had regional directors uh, all over the country. And I was made regional director for Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma, I think it was. Uh, the guy that had been before me was changing jobs and leaving, and and so they needed someone, and I ended up getting elected to do that. And so I was the uh, regional—I don't know what we call them—coordinators or directors or Direct, something. Regional director, yeah. Yeah, uh, for a period of time, and then I was elected treasurer because, you know, and that was when I went on to the executive committee because I had a degree in business. And uh, then after that, I was elected secretary. I don't know how long I was on the board. It, uh, I think I went on in 96 or 94, actually of 94. I can't remember the dates after 74 years. There's a lot of dates. <laughs> That's right, to your credit. <laughs> Now, at some point when you were on the board or very involved with SDMS, you became the representative to the AIUM Bioeffects Committee. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what was the impact of the committee on the overall occupation? That, that was a very enjoyable assignment to be on that. And it wasn't always the Technical Standards Committee. And I was on bioeffects part of the time, but technical standards, it was um, ultrasound standards for AIUM. And um, we were working on these documents that the AIUM publishes. And there was one uh, having to do with interpretation of uh, sonograms. And the, the way they had it written, sonographers were out of the loop. It was just the doctors. They were the only only thing doing anything. And I had them include sonographers because frequently the sonographers, the physician never sees the sonogram unless they photograph it. And uh, I got them to reword it like that so that sonographers were part of the diagnostic team with the sonologist. And it 
uh, I created some enemies, I guess, for myself in AIUM there. And they split that committee into two. And one became the technical standards and one became the clinical standards committees. The clinical standards was up to physicians. Technical standards was up to sonographers and mainly the PhD workers for, you know, the, the GE physicists, uh, Toshiba, uh, Medicine, all those people had representatives on this committee because they, and it was tied to the IEE, International Electronics uh, Committee. And uh, so we rocked along and we wrote all kinds of documents having to do with TI and MI and those indexes and rehashed them and, and changed them over the years because we learned more and more and more. It was really interesting, and they were really good, good people to sonographers because uh, there were a few physicians on it, and but most of them were just PhDs, and uh, we worked real well together. It, it was a great learning experience. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, it sounds like when a physician was really supportive, that was so important in that that teamwork for sonography to really be able to flourish. It didn't happen everywhere. And when I started at ARA, there were only, I think, 12 radiologists. And they were very supportive because they hadn't had sonography in, in their curriculum in medical school. So we were all learning together. Absolutely. We play this uh, game of who could, ma- who could name the most deferential diagnoses for this picture. <laughs> and, and, well, it worked. We learned a lot that way. They did, too. We were all learning together, and it was great fun. Unfortunately, many years later, some of the younger ones were more dismissive of sonographers. Mm-hmm. The more they were trained, the more they thought they had it on their own. Yeah, yeah. Terry, at what point did you start your textbook? And I know there's a, been a couple of revisions, obviously, since that initial one. Yeah. Well, the first one, fetal sonography, was at W.B. Saunders. And I had published several papers uh, it was at the AIUM in San Diego, and I presented two papers, uh, one on the cranial volume measurement and one on the embryonic heart rate. And that, that first month of acceleration where it goes straight up, starts back down. And after that, um, Lisa Biello was the vice president and editor-in-chief at W.B. Saunders. She approached me and she said, uh, would you be interested in writing a textbook? And I said, I might be. I was still at at Austin at the junior college, and she says, let's have dinner tonight. So we went to dinner, and we talked and laid it out, and I explained to her what it would be, because I, I had no, I had very few, I had access to pathology, but not consistently. Most of my OB work was really dating pregnancies in those days, and uh, we would get some pathology once in a while, but certainly not enough to write a book that had a lot of pathological stuff. So I said, it, it's going to be a normal, a, a textbook on normal gestation with sonography. And she said, that sounds good. And so uh, we signed a contract eventually. I just happened to have to have uh, a student that came to me, Victoria Viscovo. She came to my class with a master's in medical illustration. And uh, she said that she had been hired by the uh, Echo Group in Phoenix. And 
they were going to do a textbook on echocardiography. Okay. And she said when she walked into the room and saw a color sonogram of the heart, she knew what she wanted to do. So she finished the illustrations for their textbooks and stuff, and she came back to Austin. She had been at the University of Texas before she went to Baylor Medical School to get her master's in illustration. And uh, she entered my program for a associate's degree in sonography after she had a master's degree in medical illustration. She did all the illustrations in my textbook. That was very fortunate that I was having to work with an artist in Philadelphia at W.B. Saunders. And the book was selling quite well because that was at the time OBGYNnet was starting. And we actually sold more books overseas than we did in the United States at first. And um, got caught up in these mergers and takeovers, hostile takeovers, corporations. And W.B. Saunders, who published my book, was uh, subsumed by Elsevier which is the largest medical publisher in the world. And they already had Sandy Hagen answered and her two volume set. And they said, well, we don't need your book. And, uh, but you've got some original research in it that we want. And so I got two chapters in, in Hagen answered on fetal growth and measurements and the heart rate and those things I did on the embryo and, and several things that I had done, like the cranial volume and that sort of thing. So basically, W.B. Saunders in my textbook got stepped on by Elsevier. Hmm. But it's still published in the eighth edition, which has a publication date of 2018, 45 years. Now, Terry, when I was first on the board, and I want to go back with something that you mentioned earlier about OBGYN net, but also that you uh, were a strong advocate for the SMS board to becoming electronically oriented and learning yeah. about the web. And I'd like you to expand on that some. Well, of course, when we, what we call the internet now, back then, it was wasn't really known as the internet. There were listservs, and they were basically just emails to a listserv, and everybody on the listserv got it. And I was in graduate school working on my master's because I'd realized if I was going to, I was teaching at ACC, Austin Community College, and I realized if I'm going to go anywhere in academia, and I'd already spent 22 years in trenches and uh, hospitals, I thought, well, you're going to have to get a master's degree. You're never going to go anywhere. And so uh, my sister, who was a librarian, in fact, she was president of the Texas uh, School Teachers Library Association, and she was a gatekeeper for LibNet, which was the Texas Library Net for uh, Listserv. And the librarians could exchange information about new books and old books and all that kind of stuff. And because she was in that gatekeeper position, she got lists of new uh, listservs that were coming through. And she sent me this uh, notice that said, you know, there's a new one on OBGYNnet. She knew I had an interest in that. And it's, uh, it's just a listserv, just emails. And so I joined and started participating. And it was being run by a young uh, OBGYN uh, resident. In, uh, at the UTMB, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And when he graduated, 
he wanted to give it up. He, he didn't want to spend the time he had spent on it. And so he gave it to um, Fears, Bruce. He was a computer jockey for the state. And so they took it over, and they started, just as I moved to Arkansas in 96, they started, the, the Internet was starting to happen then. And they, they switched it over to an Internet-based listserv, still just text messages. And one day in about 96 or 97, I got this email as, as I was chair of the editorial bit for them at that time. And uh, I got an email from a physician in Croatia. And he was trying to describe a membrane in a pregnancy and he was afraid he had an amniotic membrane that might have severe effects on the fetus. But he didn't know if it was a sneakia or something else. And so he was trying to describe it. And so I emailed him back and I said, from your description, it's, it's hard to, to take, give you more than this. I said, try emailing me a couple of pictures and I'll see if the people in Austin, I was in Arkansas by then, but they were still here running OBGYN then. And I'll see if they can post it. Uh, and then we can discuss the pictures, the, the sonograms. And uh, so the next morning when I got to the office, there were these two sonograms with membranes. Hmm. And so I sent them to folks in Austin and uh, they put them up and all of a sudden, there were just opinions flooding in saying, no, no, that's not an amniotic membrane. That's a sneakia. It's just a scar. Don't worry about it. Don't do anything heroic. It will be fine. And he wrote back. He was just profusive in his, his thanks and saying, you know, this is just wonderful. This is going to change medicine. He says, I got expert witnesses or expert testimony from Alaska and from New Zealand and from three or four places in the United States and a couple in Europe. And he said, they all agree. And he says, I feel much better. And, and he says, this, this is going to change medicine. And so from then on, we started getting more and more of these images. And I was the editor for that part. And it went on great for about four or five years. And I guess it got too big because uh, Bruce Spear and his wife sold it to Big Pharma. And I'm not even sure I can even get into OBGYN now. It, it seems to be all physicians, and it's not much about sonography at all. Because the material offered the subscriber of OBGYN.net, how has it evolved over the years? What was the initial, and then how is it now? I know you were saying it's not a lot of ultrasound. It's more physician-paced. But... Then it was wide open. Okay. Uh, we did have gatekeepers, but if you were in medicine, we didn't care, you know, sure. anybody in. There was a section for the public, too, so they could ask questions of, you know, pregnant women and that sort of thing. It just grew and grew and grew until it got so big. And then uh, when when Bruce and Regretta Spear sold it to Big Pharma, we got cut out, basically. Got it. That explains a lot after going and looking at the site now, because I was, you know, thinking there was some a few good ultrasound, you know, name this differential, and, um, but it was mostly all physicians, so... And it went it went mainly from a focus on OBGYN sonography to just OBGYN and, and medications, big pharma. 
Sure. So is there a replacement, so to speak, for OBGYN that now specifically, or there's so many out there, it's even hard to... Yeah, you can't. You can't say. Uh, this new, uh, of course, it's not doing images, but the collaborate on OMS. Yes. Yeah. That's got a potential. It does. Yeah. But we're going to have to add images to it before it flies completely. I, I remember a terrible food fight that took place between me and an OBGYN physician in Florida mm -hmm. who I was later told by people I trust very well that he's a wonderful guy, he's not that way, but we ended up calling each other's names before we apologized and backed off. It, it was real easy in the early days because you didn't have body language, you didn't have inflection, you just had texts. And it could be misunderstood very easily. Well, Terry, that's all the time we have for our part one interview with you. We're going to be back for part two. We have so much still to ask you, and we don't want to cut off any of that history and any of the story that you have to tell about your time uh, in the occupation of sonography. Thanks for joining us for another ISP episode. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or have any suggested topics that we should be addressing, please email us at internationalsonographypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode today and join us for part two when we go into the verbiage around the word sonographer versus ultrasound technician and his thoughts on that. Also, we'll talk to Terry about the role that he played in getting the occupational distinction of sonography separate from that of radiology and where the occupation may lead to in the future in terms of advanced practice within the field. Until then, take care and we will catch you on part two with Terry DeBose.